This is the STEM Read Podcast. STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Our show today is called Pangolin Party. In honor of World Pangolin Day, we're talking to a special group of people who are passionate about pangolins. Not penguins, pangolins. A pangolin is a mammal with scales. They look like armored anteaters. They evolved to be lion-proof. When they're attacked, they roll up into an armored ball. They have sticky tongues that are as long as their bodies, and they can eat over 20,000 ants a day. A few months back, we read Hello, Hello by Brendan Wenzel. This book uses beautiful and joyful images of animals to show their connection to each other and to inspire readers to learn more about these fascinating creatures, many of which are endangered. Brendan's fascination for pangolins and other animals was contagious, and it turns out that we have pangolin experts in our own backyard. Chicago's Brookfield Zoo is one of the only zoos in the world that has been able to support pangolins in captivity. We visited the zoo during their International Pangolin Symposium in August and talked to their experts and to their keynote speaker, Dr. Jumi, chair of the Pangolin Conservation Working Group Nigeria, about this amazing and mysterious animal. For many of these interviews, I was joined by Dr. Melanie Koss from NIU's College of Education, who also happens to have a background in biology and a weakness for adorable endangered animals. Sit back and get ready to say hello, hello to our pangolin-loving pals. Our first interview is with Brendan Wenzel, author and illustrator of Hello, Hello, They All Saw a Cat, and Other Books for Children. This interview was conducted in the wild. Not the wild wild, but outside of the studio in the wilds of Naperville, Illinois. So I apologize in advance for the somewhat wild sound. My name is Brendan Wenzel, and I am an author and illustrator of picture books. I write and illustrate for kids. We're always really interested in origin stories, why you do what you do. So could you tell us a little bit about what you were like as a student? Yes, absolutely. My two kind of major passions have always been arts and uh, then animals. And so I've loved uh, the natural world just since I was uh, a kid, I remember going to the Bronx Zoo as a child and just being absolutely blown away. It was like my favorite place in the universe. And that's kind of been the driving force behind um, me making books, me wanting to tell stories, draw pictures. I was a very strange kid. I went to the first day of fifth grade uh, dressed as Indiana Jones, whip and all, thinking I would be like, the coolest kid in school because um, I was kind of obsessed with adventurers and people who tromped all over the, the globe looking for rare antiquities, I guess. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was a weird kid. I didn't grow up in the city, so I moved to Brooklyn uh, when I went to Pratt Institute. 
Uh, so I guess in 1999, I moved to Brooklyn. Until then, I uh, lived in Connecticut, uh, which is where I grew up in central Connecticut. We lived on a hill, and there was, we were lucky enough to have a little forest near our house and a bird feeder. And so I was just, I was fascinated by all the animals that kind of passed through the yard. I love that idea when birds would kind of come on migration and, and you know, take some seed for the feeder and then fly off and sort of thinking about all the stories that would kind of unfold, that they would just be here for this one moment um, and we would kind of share the same space and then they would take off and um, go about their business and I would go about my business. There was something yeah, kind of magical about that. We had a lot of garter snakes. I grew up snake catching in the backyard, fishing, doing all that, all that kind of stuff. My parents were very kind and they let me have an, an, uh, a ridiculous number of pets. We had, I think we had four cats two dogs, hamsters, gerbils, guinea pigs, tropical fish. I had a bunch of lizards, a Chilean dwarf tegu, an armadillo lizard, a python at one point. I can keep going, this would be the whole podcast. It was a <laughs> lot, it was a lot, a lot of pets. Um, oh, and a pig, how am I forgetting? I had a, a pot-bellied pig named Gus who is, for a few years was my absolute best friend in the world until he turned into a, basically the pig equivalent of a very grumpy older man with tusks. So please tell us about they all saw a cat and why the cat rather than the dog animal. For anybody who doesn't know the book, uh, They All Saw a Cat is a book about perspective and point of view and how all these animals that cross paths with this one cat throughout the course of the day all sort of experience it in their own unique way and how things like location and physiology and emotion all kind of paint their experience and change the way that they perceive it. You know, I've actually been thinking about They All Saw a Dog recently, but it would be a tough book because there was a great podcast the other day, on, I think it was a Fresh Air episode, on how you know uh, most of a dog's perception is sort of being channeled through its nose. And so that would, I think that would be a really interesting book to do, but I'm not quite sure how you would visualize an entire book based around scent. I like the idea of a cat because it was something that would be very familiar to a lot of people. I didn't want to pick an animal like a pangolin, for instance, that you know most, most people reading it would kind of not have had some sort of experience with, where I think a cat, you know, most people have some sort of strong reaction to. Um, either they have allergies or they've had a pet cat, so they're going to kind of lean one way or the other. And it also needed to be something that would kind of cross paths with all these different creatures on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were a number of reasons that I love cats. I also, I find cats to be these, you know, sort of magical, mysterious animals. Um, but then, of course, also just a, a fixture in our day-to-day -day lives. So there were a lot of fun things to play with, kind of hopping from one uh, foot to the other. And I also like that a cat is sort of known for having whiskers, which are sort of the sensory tool for sort of exploring their world. And I thought that was a fun thing to play with for the main sort of refrain of the book. Yeah, so in your book, you use a wide variety of mediums in your illustration. Reading an interview of yours where you said you really liked being playful when working with different materials and images. So how do you still stay playful in your work and why is that important to you? Uh, I think, you know, I think staying playful, especially when you're making work for kids, is, is very important. Um, just, I think a lot of authors and illustrators who I've talked to will have this experience when you go to elementary schools and you see the work on the walls and you just sort of step back and go like, I don't even know why I'm bothering to make artwork anymore. This is, so, this is exactly what I'm trying to, there's a spontaneity here and a playfulness that is exactly what I'm trying to tap into. 
Um, and I think kids are going to sense that if you're not kind of meeting them in that space. So materials that are um, a little bit unfamiliar or that can kind of take me take me to that place where I'm not feeling stiff or too controlled or too familiar really helps me step out of that zone where I'm just kind of going through the paces or going kind of like, okay, I do my sketch, then I fill it in, and then I move on to scan it into the computer. If I'm using some sort of strange cut paper and I'm not quite familiar with the texture, then I have to rip it in an interesting way or cut it or paint on it, and it's a little bit more unexpected. One of the things that I loved about your book, and apparently Jillian did too, was how you used different mediums and styles for each of the different animals and their perspectives. Mm-hmm. How did you choose which style and medium to use for each of your different animals and then which one was your favorite? I experimented a lot so it wasn't always a process of saying I'm gonna uh, wake up today as a uh, snake and then I think the final snake illustration for the book I ended up using oil crayon and acrylic paint but it was a lot of just opening the art bin which is full of a lot of materials that I've collected over the years from other friends from art school who are no longer using them. And I would see what was there and just start kind of squeezing stuff out on the palette and and pretend I was a snake. (laughs) (laughs) I would um, try to read as much as I could about the different animals, you know, their physiology and as much of the science behind how they'd probably perceive the world as I could. You know, some species of snake like pythons and pit vipers can use this, their, their tongue to they touch this, their tongue to a special sensor in the back of their head, and then suddenly they can kind of see, I think it's thermal radiation is the, is the term I'm looking for, and that enables them to see heat. So I would sort of, I, I stopped sort of like slithering around my studio, but it would, it would be, as much as, I, as much as I could kind of get myself in that state of mind, I would, and then I would basically set out to do a piece of artwork using whatever, uh, whatever material sort of felt right. How much more additional research did you do about each individual animal to get into that perspective? It, it varied from creature to creature. For the bat, for the bee, I did quite a bit of research. How has all of that that you've learned from playing with the different mediums and the different styles influenced your work today? I mean, one thing, working on the most recent book that I've made called Hello, Hello, which explores how uh, we learn to see through a sequence of animals, all of which relate to one another. So they relate to both the animal before them in the sequence and after them in the sequence. And so a big part of the book was landing on all these places where the animals would connect. A lot of the time I was, it, I was comparing species that two animals that are from very, very different uh, walks of life. So there would be a place like, let's say I was comparing two animals with scales. And I really wanted to communicate the idea of scales. Having played with a lot of materials now, I would suddenly go, oh, I know if I, if I create shapes uh, with, in a very specific way, they'll immediately draw a through line to another part of the book. You've talked a lot about animals and nature, so your website talks about you being an environmentalist. Why do you have that theme running through your books, and what do you want uh, students and teachers to take away from your books? I've loved animals since I was a kid. Jane Goodall was my hero when I was a kid. I used to follow squirrels around in the backyard with a notepad. for like five to ten minutes, it wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't hanging, putting in major hours, but uh, uh, she was a huge hero. And yeah, I've always I was always familiar with the idea of conservation, but I don't think as an adult I sort of really understood the importance of wildlife conservation until uh, my wife and I uh, moved to Vietnam. Uh, we lived in Vietnam for two years, 
And during that time period, I started learning about a lot of the, the species that inhabit that part of the world, um, uh, largely in the rainforest and the mountainous areas. One of those animals was called the Vietnamese rhinoceros, which is a subspecies of the Javan rhinoceros. When I first moved to Vietnam and you sort of walk through the backpacker district, every um, sort of tour operator would have a photograph, a camera trap photo of this Vietnamese rhinoceros out in front of their stall. And I was really excited. I wanted to try to go to Katia National Park, and which is where they, they lived and see this animal. But what I didn't know at the time, and which was not really advertised, is that this, this animal in the photo was probably one of the last Vietnamese rhinoceros alive on Earth. And so when, I think it was about a year later in early, I want to get the date right, I think it was April of 2011, they found the skeleton of the last animal, which had been um, poached, taken for its horn, which is why rhinos are largely why rhinos are hunted. And for me, this was this huge moment where, you know, I was writing about this the other day, and I always thought, as a kid and as an adult, my, my narrative for extinction was always that, you know, extinctions had happened, and, you know, things like the dodo and the passenger pigeon had gone extinct, but those, you know, that had taken place years and years and years ago, and, you know, nowadays, like, animals may become endangered, but the, at the last minute, you know, humanity always stepped in and saved the day and started captive breeding programs, and then everything was fine, like the, you know, like the giant panda was a great example. And so to have this animal that had been on this planet since, you know, had, it was basically foraging in the jungles of Southeast Asia while mammoths and saber-toothed cats were wandering the plains of North America was just, it was, it felt, it really felt like a loss. I really shift gears as, at that point um, as far as the kind of stories I wanted to tell. And, you know, I was, I certainly was drawing animals before that point, but I think at that, at that moment I really started to really approach bookmaking starting with the sort of question like how can I uh, share some of my interest about animals, about threatened species with people around me in a way that hasn't been done before. And kind of diving into that also to explore it for myself and to figure out why animals are meaningful to me, why, why it's important to have biodiversity, why it's important to have not just deer and squirrels, but you know, every level of the ecosystem sort of firing on all cylinders. What's, why does that feel um, so crucial for kind of going forward? So what advice would you have for students and teachers who are interested in conservation? And I think this is the tough thing with conservation messages is you don't want to, I think anytime you see anything that becomes too preachy or, or kind of leads with, leads with, hey, this is an animal, and guess what, it's endangered and it's disappearing. At least for me at a young age, I think that would have put me off a little bit. Like, it, it, kind of associating with that animal with pain or loss immediately doesn't seem like the best way of getting someone excited about it. One of the things I love doing is just trying to get kids excited about endangered species and fall in love with the animal, find them fascinating before necessarily even bringing in that that conservation message. I think once it's added, there, you know, there are tons of things that kids can do. Um, I was just in Thailand talking to conservationists about this exact thing. You know, I, I mean, on the most direct level, I, I think fundraising. Uh, I remember as a kid having a cart that we would push around and we would kind of raise money um, just to save, you know, buy acreage of rainforest. I always advocate writing letters to conservationists and just telling them how important you think the work they're doing is. 
celebrating not just conservation, but celebrating the people who do it. We were all talking about Jane Goodall as someone who inspired us. There are so many wonderful conservationists all over the world and people who are working in their own countries. There's, I hung out with a team from the Zoological Society of London last week, and there were all these wonderful people in Thailand working um, on the ground with pangolin species. There are these just absolutely heroic folks who are just eating, breathing, and sleeping pangolin all day long. And so, yeah, just like holding these people up and celebrating them to kids is heroic because I think they are doing, they're doing really, really important work and not a lot of people hear about it. You just heard our interview with author and illustrator Brendan Wenzel, creator of They All Saw a Cat, Hello, Hello, and other great books. One of the things that struck me about Brendan was his reason for creating Hello, Hello. He wanted to get kids to fall in love with the animals before he brought up the concepts of conservation and extinction. How can you be expected to care about something if you're not aware of it? I think that Brendan's playful, whimsical books are the perfect way to say hello to biodiversity. Brendan's books are published by Chronicle. When they released the books, Chronicle donated $25,000 to the Wildlife Conservation Society to support conservation efforts of threatened species, including the 30-plus featured in that book. All of this talk about zoos and pangolins led us to talking about Brookfield Zoo in Chicago and how they are one of the only zoos in the world to successfully keep pangolins in captivity. Melanie wanted to hug a pangolin. Kristen wanted to interview a pangolin and see what kind of noises they make. We all just wanted to see one of these rare and weird creatures in person. And it turned out that the Brookfield Zoo was hosting an international pangolin symposium. So Melanie and I put on our pangolin press hats and the organizers were gracious enough to let us crash their pangolin party. Here's our interview with Dr. Jumi, chair of the Pangolin Conservation Working Group Nigeria. So we are here at the Brookfield Zoo for the International Pangolin Symposium, talking with Dr. Jumi Morenikaji, who is a pangolin expert from Nigeria. So can you tell us a little bit about when you became interested in wildlife conservation? Thank you. I have always been involved in wildlife conservation, but at a point I became more interested, and that was when I became the director of my institution's zoological garden. I was able to do so many things in conservation while I was there. I was able to see to it that the zoo was not just for entertainment or for research alone, but also for conservation of the species that we have in the zoo. I noticed then that there was a problem in raising or breeding or taking care of the pangolins in the zoo. So I became very interested in that and that led to my forming a group, the Pangolin Conservation Working Group Nigeria. And since 2016, I have been involved in the conservation of pangolins using different means. Are pangolins well-known across Nigeria? They are not very well-known in the USA at the moment. Well, in the older population, it is known, although not to everyone. But in the younger generation, because of the way it is going into extinction, is not found everywhere again. You hardly see them. Most of the younger people have never, ever seen pangolins. And that shows that there's really a problem of the animal going into extinction. Because, I mean, for the older folks, when you ask them, they say, oh, when I was small, I used to see them, you know, around the palm oil trees and all that. But now when you ask children, they don't even know what that is. So we have taken it upon ourselves to make sure that they know and that there's a problem with the animal going into extinction. 
I'm so glad you're doing this effort because it's just so critical. Can you tell us a little bit about the pangolin and why they're unique and what role do they play in the ecosystem in Nigeria and what are the possible consequences of them going extinct? Pangolins are the only mammals that have scales. The scales are not really very harmful. I mean, they're made of keratin, just like your fingernails and your hair. They are anteaters. They are very voracious. One pangolin will eat like 70 million insects in one year. That makes them very good pest controllers. Pangolins are solitary animals. They have so many things working against them. They are not social animals. So if you find one here, for instance, then you can find another one in a very far place. So to come together to mate and then breed is actually not something that happens all the time. So also, they are being hunted down because of their meat which is a delicacy in China. They are being hunted down because even the fetuses are also used in traditional medicine. The scales are used in traditional medicine, not only in Asia, also in Africa and in my country where I come from. They are used in traditional medicine. So there's a whole lot of demand for them. We know that all the ones found in Asia are critically endangered. So there's a focus on Africa to take the ones we have to Asia, especially China and the Vietnam, where they really need this for luxury, delicacy, and for traditional medicine. So we have a major problem of pangolins being shipped away from my country and from Africa and places where they're found. It's a major, major problem because because of this demand, the pangolins are going gradually into extinction. And before we know it, it might just happen. We have to put all hands on deck to make sure that we do everything that we can do to help save the pangolins from going into extinction. I have told you they are so important. Apart from that, everything in nature is important. If you remove anything from nature, you are creating an open space that is not filled again, and that sets an imbalance. That means if we keep on removing things from nature, this is going to backfire on human beings because all those things are put there like buffer for us to exist, for us to live. So if we do not take care, there might be a major problem confronting us. Yes, I was reading about how you had talked about the importance of the pangolin to eat the insects and termites to protect the crops and how the crops could really be endangered if we lose the pangolin population. So we're very excited to hear about your World Pangolin Day, and we know that the theme for 2018 was Meet the Pangolin. So what was the goal of having people meet pangolins and hear more about them? I know and we all know that most people don't really know much about the pangolins, mm -hmm. even those in Africa, not just in places where they don't have them. I've already told you it's going into extinction, so we have very few of them left, and they are found in strategic places. So there's a need for us to move out and make people meet the pangolin. That's so strategic for me from where I'm coming from, because we started out in 2016 and we had the World Pangolin Day two years in a row in uh, my place. So I thought since this year's theme is Meet the Pangolin, I would rather take that conference to another state in the country where we have never been before so that they can also meet the pangolin. And then we would not just be addressing one part of the community structure. For example, we are interested in the government. We're interested in law enforcement agents. We're interested in getting the message across to school children who are the future of the country and of the world. We're interested in getting the message across to hunters. Yes. <laughs> 
and bushmeat sellers because they are the ones at the forefront of getting the pangolin away from the forest. We are interested in the academia, okay, because there's a lot they can do in research into the biology and the behavior of the pangolin because there are still so many things we don't know about the pangolins and we need to know. I mean, some of these things will be beneficial to us as human beings. So we took the, the gospel, if you like to call it, or the message to another area of Nigeria and we were saying meet the pangolin. And we were so excited because there were so many school children that came and, you know, they actually took their time to research into what the pangolin is. And they had presentations, artworks, uh, stage plays, you know. And it was such a robust meeting, having all these kind of people in one place doing one thing for the pangolin. So you talked about having a lot of school children come to the Pangolin Day and meet the pangolin. Can you talk a little bit about what other um, ways your organization has been educating school children on pangolin conservation? We normally also give out educational materials. Apart from having a symposium or a workshop or a conference, we also go one-on-one to speak to the children in their schools. We try to make them have projects they can do. Now, we know that will translate to children loving the environment because the pangolin is from the environment. So we know that it's something that we just transcend into having a future of Nigerians that are interested in what is happening in the environment. We're really very passionate about this. So apart from all the conferences, we also engage them one-on-one. And then sometimes when we get pangolins, we try to show them because of the relationship we have with the hunters, because it's a very expensive meat. So the hunters, if they are not educated enough, they sell them and make some money to fend for their families. But because of the relationship we have with them, some of them now, when they see or come across pangolins, they bring them to us. So what do we do with them? We release them back into a natural forest. So we have quite a number of protected areas where we release these pangolins. Then sometimes we tag them. So if we see them again or come across them again, we're able to know them. And then we take all the parameters that are necessary, like the weight, you know, those kind of things. You know, in Africa, we have four species. So also in Asia, they also have four species. So the ones we encounter the most in Nigeria are the white-bellied pangolins. And those are the ones that we have 13 of now at the Brookfield Zoo for their partnership with Zoologica and other U.S. zoos. Mm. I'm really very impressed about what the Brookfield Zoo is doing. I'm absolutely impressed because, number one, they have been able to raise the pangolins in captivity. That's a lot of work. I mean, a lot of work in trying to get the right nutrients, the right feed to give to them. I just told you, in my zoo, when uh, I was the director there, I just discovered that every time they brought a pangolin into the zoo, it would die the next day or less than a week. It really got me worried. Pangolins are very difficult to raise in captivity because they are just animals that love to have their space and they can fend for themselves. But for Brookfield Zoo to be able to do this and to have the right enclosure to put them, I think they have done an amazing thing. Uh, It's something I would really love to learn about so that we can actually replicate that in my place. What do you want the international community to know about pangolin conservation? And what are some things that teachers and students can do in the United States to learn about and help in the effort to save the pangolins? I want to say that, I mean, for the international community, I want them to see this as a task 
that must be done to save our planet. I want them to put effort into helping conservation groups to achieve their aim of actually making sure that the pangolins do not go extinct. This would go a long way in helping everybody in the world. And for teachers and students in the United States, they are very lucky. I mean, because I know that the Pittsburgh Zoo, the Brookfield Zoo, Memphis, you know, so many zoos have pangolins now. And they can actually bring the students to see these animals, try to get them educated about the animals, generally make them see the need to help the animal so that it doesn't go extinct. So, I mean, that's one way of trying to help, by bringing the children to the zoo so that they can see the animals firsthand. That will create a sort of like some love, you know, for the animals. I hear that in one of the zoos, the pangolin was made an ambassador. I think that's amazing. It gets the attention of children. I love everything that gets the attention of children and students. So that's what I'm even proposing in, at this conference, that books should be written cartoons should be made, you know, to appeal to children so that they begin to love nature, love the environment, make sure that things don't go extinct and they're just generally, uh, the world is generally a better place. I truly hope that we can help make this happen. You just heard our interview with Dr. Jumi, chair of the Pangolin Conservation Working Group Nigeria. I thought her advice was great. Take children to the zoo so they can see the animals firsthand, raise awareness, cultivate love of these fascinating creatures. Now we're going to talk to the people at Brookfield Zoo who are helping to keep the pangolins alive and well. We'll explore how their amazing staff make this possible. Here's our interview with Dr. Copper, veterinarian of zoological medicine, and Amy Roberts, senior curator of mammals for Brookfield Zoo. would like to welcome Dr. Copper, who's a veterinarian of zoological medicine at the Brookfield Zoo, and Amy Roberts, who is the senior curator of mammals and in charge of the day-to-day operations of the mammals at the Brookfield Zoo. And they are both instrumental in planning and implementing the International Pangolin Symposium here at the zoo. So I have a couple questions for you to find out a little bit more about your interest and care of the pangolins. For people who haven't heard about pangolins, what are they and why are they unique? I am Amy Roberts and the the pangolins are incredibly unique because they're the only scaled mammal in the world. They also happen to be the most trafficked mammal in the world. Four species are native to Africa and four species native to Asia and they're trafficked for bushmeat so people are eating them and then people also using their scales in traditional medicine practices. I'm Dr. Copper, and part of sort of the urgency and interest, especially from my perspective, and I think from the Chicago Zoological Society, is that this species will be extinct in our lifetime if major actions aren't taken. And the awareness of what's happening with these species isn't sort of elevated to a higher profile, and they'll disappear, and no one even knew they were here. So they're very interesting little animals in that they each have their own personalities, even individually, and they are unique in that they're not well studied, so we know almost nothing about them. And if you think about the mammals in this world, how many mammals can we say that about? Can you share a little bit for our listeners about where pangolins live and how abundant they once were and their lack of abundance now, the numbers, how they're changing? You know, the answer to that question is tricky because we don't actually know how abundant they once were. We just know that in areas where they used to find them, we don't find them anymore. And, you know, the thought is that approximately a million pangolins disappeared off this earth within the last 
10 years or possibly less. And that's a guess, you know, it could be way more than that. And if you think about other species, just as a comparison, maybe a thousand tigers disappeared off the earth from wild places in the same time frame. So it's a lot and it's fast. And so that's part of why we're all so worried. And to bounce off of what Copper said, that some of the confiscations have been in the tons, and some of those confiscations were purely just the scales. And their scales are made up of keratin, which is very similar to your fingernails. So if you could imagine how many pangolins it actually took to be slaughtered to come up with that many tons, it's truly an astounding number. So can you tell us a little bit about the International Pangolin Symposium and what its goal is? It's really to bring experts that have worked with pangolins or studied pangolins or cared for pangolins or just are interested in pangolins, bringing them all into one room and getting them talking to each other. So we have individuals here in the symposium that have worked with each of the eight pangolin species, which is pretty exciting. So we have experts in all the different species. They've worked all over the world. Some folks have worked in the field. Some people have worked in zoos, like here at the Brookfield Zoo. So we have a real diversity of interests and a diversity of sort of experiences and what they've seen with respect to pangolin. They all have a different sort of idea for what needs to happen. So it's kind of exciting to get them all together, share ideas, maybe create partnerships or collaborations for research projects or just other sorts of studies where maybe we can learn a bit more about pangolin. So really the goal is to get all these people from all over the world in one place talking to each other so we can understand what the next steps might be for the species. And why is the Brookfield Zoo hosting this event? Brookfield Zoo is one of the founding members of the Pangolin Consortium, which is a group of zoos within the United States and one private organization that imported these animals. Brookfield Zoo has a big commitment for conservation for animals broadly. So I would say that it's kind of the first underpinning of why this all happened. And then for pangolins specifically, because there's such an urgency to elevate the knowledge for these species, it's important for our leadership to be leaders in that and sort of the ones who bring everybody together. And for Brookfield Zoo specifically, the African white-bellied pangolin is the species that we have here. And so that species is really near and dear to our heart because we work with them every day, we see them, and we realize we know almost nothing about them. How did you both come to work at Brookfield Zoo? I mean, we both worked at other zoos previously. I've been at several zoos. I actually started as a zookeeper when I was 14 years old in New York State. And Brookfield just has such a strong commitment to conservation throughout my entire career. I had always hoped that I would be able to work here. And some of the resources that we have here are what keeps me here. We have a director of animal welfare. We have a director of nutrition. We have amazing vets, amazing veterinary resources. I just feel like we can offer more to our animals than many zoos and our commitment to conservation is just really important to me. For me as a zoo veterinarian there's kind of two things that I look for in a place where I want to be a part of and one is commitment to conservation just like Amy said and Brookfield Zoo has a long history of that and the other component is a place that's going to push zoo medicine forward And it was very clear to me early on in the interview process that the Brookfield Zoo has a vision for where zoo medicine needs to go in the future. And specifically with respect to imaging, so we actually have a CT or a CAT scanner here on site. And many of the species we work with, we don't even have books where we can look at the normal anatomy of them. And so if you're trying to care for these animals with respect to where to draw blood, Sometimes we're not even sure, right? So we really need to better understand the anatomy for surgical purposes as well. 
And for Brookfield Zoo, because of the CAT scanner that we have, the CT that we have, we're able to image and understand the anatomy of these animals so well into such detail that is not present in any book to look at. So I really think the next sort of five to 10 years of zoo medicine, the next big thing is gonna be advancements in imaging. And Brookfield is clearly the leader in that. So for me, they had a lot of vision and that was important to be a part of. Dr. Marenikaji was telling us about how difficult it is to keep pangolins alive in captivity and how many die the first day or within the first week. And she was extremely impressed by what the Brookfield Zoo was doing. Can you speak a little bit about the challenges of keeping pangolins alive in a zoo environment and how you've been so successful? Hers are coming in through rehab or rescue, so they're already in a poor plane. So the pangolins, it sounds like, that she is working with are rescued from maybe confiscations or injured or otherwise not healthy. We are really fortunate that the animals that we had come to us were presumed healthy prior to coming to us. So we kind of got off to a good start, but they came a long way before they came here. They had a long travel. They were being transitioned onto a diet that we could easily replicate here at the Brookfield Zoo. And it wasn't without challenge. You know, like I said, we don't know much about them. We don't know much about their normal physiology or their health. And so things were happening and we weren't sure at first if this was normal or abnormal, you know? So if it's abnormal, we should try to do something to help them. If it's normal, then obviously let them be. I guess I would really credit our success with the fact that we have so much expertise in different areas here at the Brookfield Zoo. So we have a nutritionist on staff and she has been tweaking the diet throughout the entire two years that we've had them. Amy and her staff are experts in animal care. Some are experts with primates, some are experts in carnivores, and we have different keepers with different expertise working with the pangolin, kind of brainstorming for new ideas. We have specialists here for enrichment who have come up with all these kind of interesting puzzle feeders to get the pangolin interested to come eat this diet and to get them kind of out and about and kind of burrowing or digging and so that they can express these normal or what we think are normal behaviors for the pangolin. And you know, when things aren't going well with a pangolin here, There's like 15 people that are putting their heads together to try to figure out what we can do. And I don't know that a lot of the other facilities that have worked with pangolins, especially rescue pangolins, have that luxury of having so many different people with different expertise putting their heads together and working to figure out what might be the issue for that one little pangolin, right? When I was reading about the pangolins that you had here in the zoo, the 13, I was having a good time reading about how different keepers had different relationships and how they had a lot of different personalities that were surprising. Right. Do you have any stories about a particular pangolin that you might have had a special interaction with? Oh gosh, you know, so it's a little bit tricky because as the veterinarian, I really try to distance myself from getting too close to them because there may be a situation where I have to draw blood from them. And to do that, we have to hold them in ways that may not be the most comfortable for them. And so it tears at my heart enough. And so I try to distance myself a little bit from knowing them individually. But there was one little baby that was born here. And part of the reason I was connected with him is he was born by C-section. So when during the birthing process, he got stuck halfway in, halfway out. And so we had to do an emergency C-section. So I was one of the ones who helped to bring him into this world. So of course, I'm going to be a little bit attached. And, you know, initially there was a lot of drama because we didn't know, okay, we have this little baby. Do we have to hand raise him? Will his mom take him back? 
if she takes him back, she still needs pain medications because she's just had this surgery. Is that going to affect him? You know, sort of all these questions. And we offered him back to her as she's recovering from the surgery. And she immediately let him nurse and he started nursing. And so I would say of all of them, he has kind of been the one that I keep my eye on, I guess. Is there anything else you think would be really helpful for our listeners to know so that we as individuals, teachers, educators, students can become passionate about pangolins and active in this conservation effort? Just knowing about a pangolin is huge because when I tell all my friends and family, oh, we're having this pangolin symposium, they're like, great, penguins are so cool. I'm like, no, not the penguins, the pangolins. And before working here at Brookfield, I worked with giant pandas. And so when I start talking about pangolins, people immediately think I'm just talking about pandas. So there seems to be kind of a lot of confusion about even what a pangolin is. So the idea that you're even spreading the word about this little creature is pretty amazing. So just knowing that pangolins exist in this world is a huge first step. Thanks for celebrating World Pangolin Day with STEM Read. We hope that you'll be inspired to say hello to new and amazing animals like the pangolin by reading great books, going to the zoo, or even being little Jane Goodalls in your own backyards. Just reaching out and saying hello is the first step to preserving global biodiversity. Thanks to our guests, Brendan Wenzel, Dr. Jumi, Dr. Copper, and Amy Roberts. Thanks also to Chronicle Books, the Brookfield Zoo, and the planners of the International Pangolin Symposium. And for those of you who are missing Kristen, have no fear, she will return in future episodes. This is the STEM Read Podcast. If you like the STEM Read Podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.